welcome to Beastly Theories. This is Andy McGrath, your host. Today, I have a very special guest. Uh, Richard Freeman is with me. Now, Richard is the director at the Centre for Fortune Zoology. He's the author of several books as well, including uh, his newest book, Adventures in Cryptozoology, The Orion Pendix, Sumatra's Forgotten Ape, The Great Yokai Encyclopedia, Dragons More Than a Myth, and Export Dragons, amongst others. And I'm very happy to have him here. Richard, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, I'm actually not the director of the Centre for Fortune Zoology. I'm the zoological director. John Downs is the overall director. He's the guy that uh, initially came up with the uh, the organisation. Um, of course, of course. Of course. I've just usurped him right there and, and put you in his place. He's not going to be happy about that. <laughs> you know, some sort of ploy, some sort of ploy that's that's going on here between us now. Um, I know you from some of your writings from your position at the CFC also um, as an explorer. Now, lots of us explore in our own backyards for the things we think may or may not exist in places like Loch Ness or, you know, in, um, in, in Washington State, if that's where you live for, for Bigfoot and things like that. But you like to go further afield, don't you? Um, and when I find out about some of the things that you were doing, I was actually quite impressed that you go into some of these very uh, let's say not uncivilized but we're not talking developing world countries for the most part here you know this is traveling by your wits now i just wanted to talk about some of the expeditions you've been on especially for things like the almas so could you tell us what are the almas and and where did you go to find them well the the almasti as, the, as they're called in the caucasus mountains in russia um quite right widespread over um, parts of russia and the former soviet union they are supposed to be hairy man-like creatures seven to seven and a half feet tall so not as massive as the yeti or the sasquatch mm. and somewhat more man-like they have a thick brow ridge uh, flattened broad nose wide lipless mouths powerful jaws great mane of hair that comes down from the head hairy body they don't have fire they, they, they don't have the fire technology there. They will fill rocks and use clubs. But their, their tool use is quite primitive and ape-like, but they seem to be more closely related to human beings. And the Russians took these creatures so seriously that in the 1950s, there was a commission, the Snowman Commission, set up specifically to look for them. And it, its headquarters was the Darwin Museum in Moscow. Mm. And they took a number of expedition, expeditions into the Tianchei Mountains on the borders of China and then it was disbanded but um, people like Boris Prozhnev and Peter Smolin and um, many of the others who were involved with it, Marie-Jean Kaufman, remarkable woman, um, they carried on with their research and um, recently a new snowman commission has been uh, has been started in Russia. I went there to search for the Almasti in, in the Caucasus Mountains, and I talked to many people who had seen it. And even the deputy head of Alborus National Park, who's a geologist, who saw one of these creatures. And they take them as, as not fantastical. They're no more mm. miraculous or strange than a bear or a, a wolf or a wild boar or a lynx. Uh, maybe a little bit rarer. There's a taboo against shooting them there because they believe that they're a, a type of wild man rather than an animal. And it seems that there's some sort of a relic hominin rather than an ape that is uh, a relative of one of the ancestors of man. Possibly an early offshoot of Homo erectus or Homo habilis. There is masses of new fossil and genetic evidence suggesting that the ancestral family tree of man had lots and lots of unknown species on it completely uh, unexpected and it's it's a field that is really blossoming at the moment mm -hmm. i think i heard uh, jeff meldon speaking about something like this at a conference actually about it being more of um, a branching sort of family tree than a, a direct lineage yes the um, old the old idea of that there's the old picture of a uh, of the ape on all mm -hmm. four and then, then they're gradually starting to stand up and to you know the picture I mean. It's a regular meme these days, I think, for that's, all that's types of uh, modification. Yeah. <laughs> totally, totally wrong. I mean, now we've had the uh, Denovisians discovered recently, known only from 
fragmentary bones, but mm. uh, their entire genomes taken from a a tiny little, um, no bigger than a, a grain of rice, just as part of a finger bone. Mm -hmm. So well preserved, the whole of the the um, Denisovian uh, genome has been taken from this. Wow. Sort of, you know, more recently, there's been two new species of hominin found at Red Deer Cave in China. They, they haven't even been given names yet, mm -hmm. but uh, they were knocking around only 10,000 years ago. Wow. In geological terms and evolutionary terms. We have the Homo floresiensis mm. from um, the island of Flores in Indonesia, the tiny little three foot tall hobbit people. And they were thought to be initially a dwarf island form of Homo erectus, but mm -hmm. more recent work shows that they're more closely related to Homo habilis, which is an African hominid, much more primitive than Homo erectus. And we had no idea that it had this lineage outside of Africa because these two new species from Red Deer Cave seem to be more closely related to Habilis than um, Erectus. So it seems like Homo Habilis as well as Homo Erectus had this lineage that went out from Africa and stretched halfway around the world. And Homo Habilis died out oh, nearly two million years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, but Homo floresiensis was knocking about 50,000 years ago, and these two new species on, in China were knocking about just 10,000 years ago. And are they and saying essentially that there are, as far as the timeline is concerned, that they're actually crossing over one another in certain areas of the world? Is that right? Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and certainly interbreeding took place. We know that sub-Saharan Africans, hmm. they have... Uh, Something in their genetic makeup which is suggesting a completely known species, unknown species of hominin mating with their ancestors. Mm. And the people from New Guinea and the surrounding islands have got yet another one. So we're having, and these are not known from bones, they're, they're known from um, <coughs> the genetic traces they have left in, in modern day uh -huh. modern man in certain parts so of the world. So these have been extracted from the current nations of people, current races yeah. of people. Wow. That's amazing. That's something I wasn't aware of at all, actually, that they're actually extracting DNA from yeah, yeah. unknown and, forms of... Certain populations of people in certain areas, their ancestors were mating with other hominins that we, we don't even have their fossil, fossils yet. We're just known from these weird DNA traces they leave. Uh, <clears throat> recently, there's a guy called Mark Evans, who's a, a television vet, and he was up in Bhutan. And he had a French geneticist with him, and they were looking for eDNA, environmental DNA. Mm. That's where an organism walks through somewhere, or drinks from somewhere, or interacts with the environment and leaves bits of its cells on whatever it's interacting with. Mm. And there was a pool, a mountain pool in, the, in, in Bhutan, and they took <coughs> samples from there and they found species of wild goat and antelope they didn't know were in the area, but they also found the DNA of a primate. And that primate, whatever it is, shares 99% of its DNA with human beings. So wow. it's more closely related to human beings than a chimpanzee is. So that could be the DNA of the Yeti. I mean, that's, that's really fantastic. I was talking with um, Todd Dissetel about this eDNA, and of course, Professor Gemmell just did the eDNA study at Loch Ness. I mean, I, I think that really is possibly the most... Um, crucial tool to cryptozoology that we, we could have at the moment e to find it having to capture it is, 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 e is a great it's the way forward yeah it's the way forward mm. that's really wonderful now when you were out there searching for the almas what kind of situations did you encounter now i'm assuming it wasn't just a smooth ride and jumping on a tube or something like that although that's not always such a smooth ride either <laughs> but um uh, you know, what kind of adventures did you have there? What were the people like that you met? Uh, the, the Russians were very friendly, the local people, very hospitable, friendly. Um, <clears throat> and most of them didn't understand why we'd come so far. Hmm. They couldn't understand why we'd come so far just to study something that they took for granted. Uh -huh. I mean, there's there an old couple we met that had both seen 
Al Masti on different occasions. The old, the old woman in her youth when she was a girl, and and she just couldn't understand why we'd come so far for for something that they right. they take for granted. It would be like them coming to, to Britain to look at badgers. One of the most interesting things that happened in Russia was when we were staking an, out, an old farm a few miles outside of the village of Neutrino. And this farm had been, um, it had been um, abandoned since the 1970s, 1973. There'd been a triple murder there, all mm. over money, robbers, uh, trying to steal old folks' money. And, okay. But it had been abandoned for years. And um, there'd been a number of Almasty sightings around this old farm. And one of our colleagues, our Ukrainian colleagues, um, an archaeologist called Anatoly Serendenko, he had seen a seven-foot almasty near there. And a few years back, there'd been some shepherds just hanging out on the veranda that runs around this old farmhouse. And it's about eight years before, so about 2000. And <laughs> um, they said that the door at the end of the veranda just opened and a seven-foot almasty was there and walked along the veranda picked one of the men up, just moved him out of the way, got to the end of the veranda, jumped off and disappeared. <laughs> so what we did, we set up some camera traps around the place, uh-huh. and we uh, put some bait out, red wine and honey and cherries and meat, and <clears throat> all sorts of fruit, <clears throat> and we, um, we staked the place out. And if you can imagine, it got a, this farmhouse consisted of three rooms and an L-shaped veranda room around it. At 10.30 at night, there's a weird twittering noise. One of the noises the, the Almasty is supposed to make is this bird-like twittering. Uh-huh. Then one of the camera traps goes off. And I'm thinking, goodness, could that be what I think it is? Then nothing else happens till about 2.30 in the morning. It's getting a bit cold. So we go into one of these rooms and we're huddled around a, an old stove. And my mate... Um, Dave Archer falls asleep on a manky old mattress. And it's myself and um, my friend Adam Davis, I'm sure you've heard of. I know who Adam is, yeah. Um, and we're warming ourselves around this fire, and uh, the door that goes out onto the veranda is slightly ajar, just a few inches, and there's moonlight and starlight streaming in. And from outside comes a deep, guttural vocalization. Sounds like something with very big lungs. Oh. Sort of a bum 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 sound. And I said to Adam, did you hear that? He said, yeah. And something walks along the veranda. And as it goes past the door, it blocks out the starlight and the moonlight to a height of seven foot plus. Wow. And I, says, I said to Adam, it's out there on the veranda. So we grabbed our digital cameras, went rushing out, whatever it was, disappeared into the darkness. Wow. Morning. Did they have bears in that area? They do have bears, yes, but, but this was upon two legs. Uh-huh. Bears don't walk around on two legs. They can stand and walk yeah. on two legs for short periods. A few steps, perhaps, yeah. It's that posture, and it would have made much more noise with its mm. claws on the, the wood of the, mm. the veranda. And, that's, uh, that's very, very interesting. How do you... morning, and all we got was vegetation moving. Really? Did you have the... the um? Sorry, just uh, to picture it in my mind. What, where were your camera traps in regards to the veranda? They were facing outwards, and some <sighs> of them were in outbuildings as well. So they were in the area, and you went back to stay in the house and um, had the. Now, what do you think about these these creatures, and and in regards to things like camera traps and people? There was a little study actually on, on chimps recently that I saw um, a little clip, like a YouTube clip about a study where they would they put camera traps in their normal haunts and the chimps became aware of the traps and avoided them. Mm, in fact, in some cases, dismantled them as well and stayed out of, out of the sight of the camera traps. And I thought that was a very interesting development from a chimpanzee. Now, do you think creatures like this that are habituated to their environment you know to them a camera trap is, is quite an obvious object that stands out as being foreign in their environment well these these things would be more intelligent than chimpanzees mm. if you look at somewhere like uh the pacific northwest in the united states and canada mm. there's been loads of um 
loads of camera traps put up there just to look for ordinary wildlife. So mm. ordinary wildlife and not one of them, as far as I know, is caught a Sasquatch. Yeah. Maybe they, they can see what they are and avoid them. I think with camera traps, the way to go is a bit like um, the BBC did with their spy cams, where they disguise them as rocks and other parts yes. of the environment so they don't stick out. Mm. Mm. Maybe that's the way to go. Yeah, I remember that with the, I think they, they were on the Serengeti with those spy cams, rock cam, wasn't it? That's what they called it. I was um, very curious. I remember there's an alleged, again, this is from YouTube, Sasquatch, uh, a bit of footage taken from an eagle's nest um, in some forest. Well, I don't know anything about the background, but it just strikes me. It came to mind that you can see a large creature strolling through the forest. And of course, this camera is set up over the, the, the chicks and the eagles nest to monitor them. It only captures this figure, whatever it may be, Absolutely. incidentally. I wonder if that, that might be a way forward or if it's the electronic aspect of the cameras that's alerting them. Perhaps we need to go fully analog again uh, with the way that we're capturing things and just have some kind of you know, timed uh, release there. I'm not really sure. Now, the Almas, or Almasti, is, is one of the things you've, you've looked for extensively. But one of the things that always piqued my interest was the Mongolian deathworm. That's such a cool sounding name, doesn't it? Um, now, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming that means that you went to Mongolia. That's, you know, a really different place, different culture of people. How did you come to find yourself in Mongolia? What intrigued you about this story first of all and, and how did the people reacted to you as well to seeing you searching for, for one of their legends in their land well i followed the work of a uh, czech cryptozoologist called ivan Merkele, sadly he now passed away a lovely guy who'd been there several times and i thought this is a fascinating creature i've got to get out there and see if i can find it so um with this particular one i financed it with a, a modest inheritance i had from my late father and mm. <clears throat> took an expedition, took a four-man expedition out in 2005 uh, to the Gobi Desert to went with eMongol.com. And what we did was we had some posters printed up and translated into Mongolian, saying that a bunch of British scientists are going to be coming through here in this at this time. And anybody who knows anything about the death worm, we'd like to talk to you. And if you can get a hold of a specimen, we'll pay you for it. Mm. And we went right across the Gobi for about a thousand. And it's the most alien place you can ever imagine. It's like being on another planet. Some of it is, some of the desert is all mica, chips of mica, so it looks mm. like a mirror. They call that area the mirror. Little wow. bits of the surface of Mars. Wow. Uh, other bits like, like cat litter trays, giant cat litter trays, because it's all granular. It's very strange. We saw mirages out in the desert of cities. and We got caught in a, um, a tornado, a whirlwind, that wow. destroyed our camp. And I was like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. I was <laughs> the eye of it, looking up into the, the eye of this tornado, and I saw one of our drivers spinning round horizontally, hanging onto the shredded remains of a tent. It was probably the most fantastical expedition we've ever done but we've talked to about two dozen witnesses who some of whom had seen it back in the 1930s and one of whom had seen it as recently as the year before mm. and they were describing this reddish brown and sort of brick red colored animal that looks like a salami or a draft excluder and most of them have just seen it lying in the desert and they're terrified mm. of it they believe it can spit a corrosive saliva uh -huh. but and the one guy saw it in his youth when he was tending to his family's um, camels and, and goats. And he went back and told his parents, and they packed up their gear, the search of their tents they have, and got all their livestock and moved out of the area. It can throw a whole area into a panic when somebody wow. sees it, and such is, is the, the terror of them uh, that people have. But all these sightings dovetail, they all sound the same. I mean, one guy said he'd seen it eat a mouse. It came out of a hole and grabbed the mouse. And another guy said that's way back in the 70s, some scientists from Russia had actually killed one. They were studying snakes and they killed one of these things and took it away. So 
maybe if the story's true, there's the remains of one in some the basement of some Russian mm. museum. And I don't really know what it is. We came to the conclusion that it's not a worm at all, it's some sort of crawling reptile. Maybe an Amphispana or a worm lizard. Uh -huh. Group of strange uh, poorly studied reptiles. They're not snakes, they're not lizards, but they're related to both of them. They, they're mainly uh, subterranean, but it could be a very large species of, uh, of worm lizard. That's very, that's very interesting. Do you think something like that could have any relation to the, the famed uh, Tatsu worm? The Tatsu worm sounds like a skink. I think uh -huh. it's probably extinct now, this Tatsu worm, because the sightings of it seem to dip off after World War Two, and I don't think there's been any credible recent ones from the Alps. But they, once again, it was a sausage-shaped creature, this sort of greyish-green colour with thick scales. And sometimes it's depicted with two little legs at the front, and there are certain types of skink hmm. that have uh, reduced limbs, and some of them only have two front limbs. Uh -huh. and they, have, they have the same sort of cylindrical body shape as, as, as the tatsu worm as well. Right, that that's I, that's very interesting. It just a, it was a bit, bit of a bit of a giant guess there, but um, and that's always fascinated me. You know, these ground dwelling possible reptilian uh, species that may be around. Now, there's a few names of some of the creatures that you've searched for that that um, were new to me actually, and uh, two of them were the Ninki Nanka and another one Gambo. So, can you tell us a, a little bit uh, what is Ninki Nanka and and, and Gambo? Well, they, they were part of the same expedition uh, we did to Gambia in, um, in West Africa. Um, the Ninkinanka was supposed to be a dragon-like beast, which meant it's much feared. Hmm. It lived on the River Gambia and the swamps around it. And, uh, whenever it appeared, it was supposed to be terrible luck. And it would come out after rainfall and it was supposed to have, been, have destroyed bridges and Things like that. And I thought maybe this is the same thing as Nokia Mbembe of the Congo, mm. the, the so called Congo dinosaur. I don't think it's a dinosaur at all. I think if Nokia Mbembe exists, it's a giant semi-aquatic monitor lizard. Uh -huh. And the other supposed dinosaur in that area, Melanotoka, the killer of elephants, sounds more like a rhinoceros than a ceratopsian dinosaur. Oh, yes, yes. What is this, what is this called again? The, uh, it's a yeah. killer of elephants. Yes, that's right. In uh, Ngube, um oh, I forget, sorry. There, there's several, in fact, in there. There's in Bielo and Bielo and Bielo, isn't there? Uh, Ngubu, that's one of the ones, I think. And they all seem to have dinosaurian attributes. But the two that have the most sightings of the Melanotoka and the Makeli and Bembe. Yes. Yes, that's anyway, right. A Gambo is something different. Gambo was. Um, Something that was supposedly discovered by a, a missionary's son in the early 80s on this beach, lying on this beach in um, Gambia, washed up and dead. And um, he made some sketches of it and sent them to BBC Wildlife magazine. And they sort of superficially resembled a pliosaur, uh, a marine prehistoric reptile. So uh, he made some notes of where he buried it on a beach because he, he said that some local came and hacked the head off the corpse and took it away and he thought it was it, the rest of it needed preserving so he buried it on the beach. So we, we did this two-pronged um, attack really uh, for, for Ninkin and, uh, and Gambo. Um, Dr. Carl Schuker came up with the name Gambo. <laughs> he's, he's rather good at inventing names. Oh, but, he named it. Catchy names for new cryptids. Hmm. Um, anyway, when we got to Gambia, we found that the, the Ninkinanka, um, everybody knew about it and they would say, oh, I heard that a hunky from my village saw it and, and he died sometime after. If you see it, you're supposed to die afterwards. Mm -hmm. We talked to a guy um, in a national park and said his grandfather had seen one in uh, Second World War, and he described it as this great serpentine beast with a crest on the head and shining scales. And his, his grandfather died sometime afterwards. Um, but it was always <coughs> somebody they knew or a friend of a friend had seen it. Mm. The guy we talked to 
they've said, said he'd seen it, but he saw it crawling out of a hole and it was about 200 feet long. He had this horse-like head and a crest on the head. And um, he said that after he saw it, he started, he became ill. And he had to go and see an imam, uh, uh, an Islamic holy man who gave him uh -huh. a potion to cure him. And he took us to this hole where it's supposed to have crawled out of and this, these swamps. And, you know, the hole wasn't much bigger than a rabbit hole. So I didn't really buy his story at all. Mm, talked mm. to another guy, said his uncle had seen it as a boy and he told the people in the village and the village had been abandoned. And he was so scared that the people were rattled by it. Mm. Even our guide wouldn't go into the swamps with us. The, the, what, the man we were talking to whose uncle had seen it, he even refused to look at the swamp. He, he had to turn the other way. And we had to interview him from behind a bush. He was so frightened. <laughs> and the guide went part of the way into the swamp with us. Yeah. And um, then he he, he, um, he filled his pants and. So what happened? You carried on into the swamp alone. The swamp on our own, and I, and I had a look around. But we came to the conclusion that the monkey man came. And when, when we talked to the people when we got over there, it seemed to be more something more serpentine than mm -hmm. saurian. Um, we came to the conclusion that it was a demonization of a pre-Islamic python cult. Mm -hmm. You know, when when they were being converted to Islam, the old gods become demonized. Yeah. The old places become demonized. And it seems to be that anything goes wrong, it's blamed on the Minky Manka. There was okay. a, a, a crash of a lorry out there, and the lorry still there years later, and they said that the Minky Manka slithered across the road, uh -huh. disappears in the wilderness. The Minky Manka. So it's a kind of a. Um, uh, religious and superstitious way of explaining away bad luck. Right, yeah. life or anything that's bad about what's going on, it's it's the demon, right? It's certainly it's not the same as as Akali and Bembo, which is a much more believable creature as a biological entity. Mm -hmm. As for Gambo, we dug a big hole where it was supposed to be because at the time when it was washed up, it was quite a remote area of, of the coast. But now there's nightclubs there and things. Okay. Like that. We're digging this big hole and this. The people from the hotel came over and said, what are you doing digging this hole? So we said, oh, uh, yeah, well, uh, the government asked us to do it. We're uh, British scientists and uh, studying beach erosion. <laughs> they're worried that the beach might might be eroding. And they looked really worried and said, oh, go on, yeah, carry on, carry on with your research. <laughs> Dug this big pit where this thing was supposed to have been buried. But we found absolute Fanny Adams. And then we yeah. said to them afterwards, don't worry, the beach is not eroding. And they, they looked all relieved. But we remember <laughs> people including a, a, a guy who made jewellery, who had been there um, for years and years. He remembered this thing being washed up. This okay. old man. He said it was just a dolphin. Well, oh, was, really? Just a dolphin. And that was his memory, that he just, it just had a dolphin. Yeah, he said it was just a dolphin. It's strange, isn't it, how these things um, grow? These yeah. sightings grow sometimes. I, I understand when there's uh, tourism involved or you want to bring people to the area or or just, you know, in in a place where perhaps there's a, a level of boredom, you know, in village life and local life that you turn something into something bigger. It's fireside story, isn't it? And it, it, gain, it gets entertainment and it keeps people interested in, in the life there. But um, how do you... How do you look at that and say, okay, I mean, if you're looking at all of these reports and you're going and investigating, how do you pull out so that the factual aspects of these reports, especially in places where people uh, are often invoking superstitious meaning to the things that they find? It's, it's quite easy, really, in my, in my experience, because when you've got, when you've got something real, people have seen it. When it's not real it's like i didn't see it but i heard about mm. such, such or sorry, or, or the man from my village saw it and, mm. and with the real flesh and blood things there's no supernatural elements yeah. with ninkin anchor it's like the basilisk they thought they just sort of would die mm. and had this sort of spiritual aspect to it but with the flesh and blood things there's it's not like that you talk to people who been going about their business, they've seen this thing, um, you know, it's a sighting. It's not like... Yeah, 
Yeah. But there's nothing religious to it. And at one point, when we were in the Gambia, we went on the wireless, uh, and we, we did this program about the Minky Nanka, and we said, we're looking for um, witnesses, and can we contact us on this number? A couple of days later, a guy rings up saying, oh, I know where one of these things is. There's a, uh, a great hole in a swamp in a place called Mandanari, and one of these, like he called it a dragon, because this dragon is down there. Mm. If you get a dog and throw it down there, the dragon will come out and eat it. And everyone, I'm not going to throw a dog down. I love dogs. I throw a mm. cat down. Mm. Yeah, I don't like cats leaving them. Uh, but he, then he says, I can lead you to this area, but how much are you going to pay me? Yeah. 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 I'll be risking my life. And yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Sure. We went along to Mandanari on our own. And we got talking to one of the locals, and he looked like. Remember the actor Peter Lorre? Uh, no. He was in um, M and um, the Maltese Falcon. Oh, He's yeah, yes. Falcon. I know who you are. Yeah. With with round you. face with very big eyes. Yeah. Okay, um, yeah. Peter Lorre. Funny voice. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. We met him in um, 20,000 Leagues Beneath the Sea. Yes, yeah. Yeah, damn. And he, um, we met this guy, this African guy, who looked like, he was like an African version of Peter Laurie. He looked really? <laughs> just like him. And we said, do you know anything about the Minky Nanka? And he goes, oh, yeah. It is this grey animal covered in scales that shine like mirrors. Oh, wow. He will die. Maybe he was a fan of Peter or something. Father told me about it when I was a child. <laughs> Give me money now. Yeah. So they were all on the scrounge. If they're on the scrounge, don't believe anything. Well, of course, because <laughs> I mean, there's, there's an aspect to that as well. Now, generally speaking, what you say is when people are searching for, for payment of some kind, they'll come up with stories and tales to, to extract money from you. Are there situations that you've been in, essentially, where somebody has seen something, but of course they're living in a deprived area as well, so payment is, is what they want for their time essentially how would you differentiate between the the real guys and the the, the hucksters there or would you they, say they, if you're asking for money it's, it's out of that's the, the only time it's ever happened hmm. that's the only time it's ever happened yeah, yeah another, on the first day we were there in gambia we were looking for this part of the beach where gambo was on and this local yeah. bloke said are you looking for the beach and and we said yes it's, it's down there and we said thanks and then like he followed us and he followed us like really close behind, like getting into everybody's personal space. And he just trailed around with us all day. And then at the end of the day, he said, oh, can you pay me now? And <laughs> I said, pay you for what? And, uh, and he says, well, I've been your guide. <laughs> he told us where the beach was, and he followed us around all day. It's, it's a funny old world, isn't it? You know, it went, um... but, but Gambia is the only place that happened. Nowhere else, nowhere else in the world. I've never experienced that myself, to be honest with you, but I haven't really been as far afield as you um, to these types of places. Now, talking about um, perceived far-flung places to, to visit, you've been to Russia quite a lot, and you've talked about the LSD, but I hear you've been looking for Russian lake monsters too. Now, lake monsters is a big favourite of mine, always has been. So what type of uh, lake monsters have you searched for in Russia, and, and where? I haven't searched for any lake monsters in Russia. I want to go. Oh. That's, okay. that's something I want to do. There are several lakes in Siberia that I want to visit. There's one called Lake Chani. Chani, uh-huh. Chani, which is about 50 miles long by 50 miles wide. It's roughly square. It's not very deep, uh, but it's in southern Siberia. And there are a number of communities around it, but <clears throat> the people that live there say that it's in the past 10 years or so, about 19 people have been killed by something from the lake. Oh, I've heard of this one. Uh -huh. serpentine and about 30 feet long. And mm. They say it rams boats, flips boats over and grabs people. There was one guy who was fishing with a friend on the lake and the creature rammed the boat. They both fell in the water, whatever it was, grabbed his friend. He made it to the shore, never saw his mate again. Wow. Uh, another story involved a woman whose son, who was an ex-soldier, uh, she was on shore, he was fishing on a boat, the thing rams the boat, flips it over, grabs him, never seen again. And they've asked for a 
official government investigation, the government say people are just drowning, getting pissed mm. off and drowning, basically. They get drunk and drown. But the thing is, chunks of these people are, have been washed upon the shore. Ah, okay. 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 I mean, that, that's obviously different. I, I wonder if there are many um, known species in the lake that could account for that kind of um, predation on a corpse, I mean, anyway. The, um, only, the only big fish in that area were big fish the sturgeon, and they're mm, bottom feeders. Yeah. They feed on very small things. This thing seems to be an active predator that attacks mm. people. And it's not the only lake. There's Lake uh, Lavanica and Lake Verota um, that are further to the northeast. And there are no populations around there, but there are nomadic peoples that mm. live there, and they say they've had. Um, rafts flipped over and people taken. They've had their dogs chase deer into the water and the things come mm. out of the water and grab deer and pull the deer on that. And Russian scientists have also seen huge creatures in the lake as well, mm. um, which sound like some sort of huge fish. But no no Western film crew has ever been over there no. to investigate. And the Lake Chani story, it sounds like the script to a horror novel it does, or, or a film, doesn't it? <laughs> it does really. People in ten years—that's a lot of people. There is a lot, but I, I wonder about things like that as well. Where you hear about predation by lake monsters, where most other locations where you know, similar Nessie-like lake monsters are said to inhabit, there are no stories of attacks at all usually. I wonder if it's to do with the environment. Maybe Siberia is very desolate. Maybe the fish population is low in the lake. And maybe it has more of a need for extra protein, or these animals, whatever they may be. Uh, hence the um, preying upon as fishermen. Far, as far as I know, the, the fish population is just fine there. Oh, really? It's, thing, whatever it is, it's probably not the same thing as whatever is going mm. out of Loch Ness. Maybe. I don't think there's a, res a resident population of large animals in Loch Ness. I think it's mm. You think it's more of an itinerant um, uh, creature that's coming in and out and, and moving between the different lochs and, and the sea? Yeah. Um, let's talk about yes. expedition do's and don'ts, Richard. Like, obviously, you've been to some far-flung places. It'd be, I think, interesting for people to know what they should should do uh, as an amateur explorer if they're, they're deciding to, to take up this kind of life. What kind of preparation do you want to go before setting off on one of your adventures? And um, what would you say are the perils of this kind of cryptozoological decadence? <laughs> the big number one thing you have to do is get good trustworthy experienced local guides they are the key we've had some great guides in, in sumatra and places like that and um guiana um who really know really know the, the environment they, they can find you witnesses mm. they can find places to stay they can get people really cooking they can arrange with transport for instance in mongolia the guides were so that everything ran so damn smoothly great guy that's number one number two do research about the country mm. what inoculations if any you've got to take people worry about the big things they worry about getting eaten by crocodiles in the jungle and things and tigers and bears the thing that's most likely to get you are small things mosquitoes toxic flies stuff like that so make sure you've got all your shots and um research what equipment you know you need to take. Sometimes the guides provide tents, sometimes you have to take mm. them. Uh, the guides will provide the food, they always buy the food in advance and in bulk. But the, the, the two main things are guides, inoculations, and then research your target, target area. And you've also got to be flexible. Make a plan. Mm. You've got to look at where these things have been seen the most, go to those places, but you've got to be flexible if someone's seen creature a few miles down the road go there you'll be ready to go to wherever it's most recently been seen mm -hmm. i think that's that's sterling advice that, that's very good and you'd probably be surprised how many people wouldn't think of those kinds of things because for most of us living in a western society we would consider most of the countries to be similar to our own or at least to have similar access to health care and and help to our own. You um, take into account how long it takes to get to places. Mm. Like in Sumatra is very mountainous, for example. It will take you four times as long to get anywhere in Sumatra than it would mm. in Britain. 
and you've got to wear the right clothes. A mate of mine who came to South America with us, he had these old boots on, and the bottoms came off them like clown boots. <laughs> <laughs> so he had to wear sandals like for the rest of the, the expedition. Oh, no. So make sure you've got good footwear, good clothes. And remember, some places that are warm can go deathly cold at night. Mm. Cloud forests in Sumatra, they might be warm in the daytime, but by night they are freezing. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. And I've had that experience a few times in very hot places. Um, now, just before we get into your books, um, you talked about one of the close calls you had in Mongolia with the, with the uh, tornado, or hurricane. Yeah. Um, have you had any other close encounters on your uh, adventures, either with people or authorities or nature, um, the environment, etc.? What can you tell us about some of those um, perils, again, of, um, of your exploratory adventures? Yeah, Russia was out to kill me. Um, <laughs> climbing up uh, this mountain in Russia, and um, we were walking across this area that looked like densely packed snow. We thought, well, sorry, everybody else got across it, but I'm a fat bastard. <laughs> uh, and I fell through it because it wasn't it wasn't solid <laughs> and I found myself sliding along on my backside towards this huge great chasm oh, and I would have gone a drain like uh, several hundred feet down I'd, I'd ram my boots into some rocks and stop myself going down on the same now I couldn't get across this crevasse because of the you know I was too heavy to get across so I went back down to camp that day on the way back I lost my way on the path and um, uh, I came to a cliff that had been gouged out by a, a retreating glacier. Mm. And you'd hear this thing rumble occasionally, this glacier. And I was walking along it and it all gave way underneath me. I was left hanging on to the roots like Indiana Jones. Gosh. Myself up. So I didn't fall 50 feet onto jagged ice. And then a few days later, I was nearly swept away by rapids. That was all in, that was all in Russia. Wow. Uh, I got attacked by a spitting cobra in um, in the Gambia. Generally, generally it's uh, it's okay. I've been. It generally it's okay. Just a in, few in Sumatra, of death and. <laughs> I'm in Sumatra. Um, the, the three of us round a campfire had a jolly evening picking a hundred leeches off each other's legs. Oh. I've been covered in mosquitoes. When I was looking for the giant anaconda in South America, um, I, I had heat stroke because we were out in the grasslands. We went at the wrong time of year. Um, it was the middle of the dry season and it was mm. brown, even the native. I couldn't remember it being so hot and so mm. dry. And um, I've got, I had heat stroke there. And, and my arse was bitten to ribbons by these things called vine flies. And Gosh. my ex-girlfriend, um, my girlfriend at the time took a, actually took a photograph of my arse <laughs> and it looked like a giant, a giant pallid mutant strawberry from Sellafield. Oh no. Bites on it. Unripened Sellafield strawberry. Another time in Sumatra there was a monsoon when we were driving back through the mountain and um, we were in this little minibus and there's a guy behind us on a motorbike mm. and I was looking through the back window and a chunk of the road 20 foot across just fell away he managed to jump off his motorbike just in time wow. this 20 foot chunk of the road his motorbike just went careening thousands of feet down this gosh mountain. gosh i must admit that's my my biggest fear actually mudslides don't want to get buried in mud <laughs> um well not yet anyway not until i'm, I'm <laughs> Very and gone. So it really sounds like now a lot of people, there's armchair researchers, and that's absolutely fine. I think if you want to research about different things, put things together from the comfort of your home, that, that's your interest, that's okay. But nearly everybody I've met has mainly stayed within their own land you know, to look for the things that they're interested in, or gone to a similar land like North America or Australia or something like that. I know Australia is challenging as well. But to go to Africa and Russia and South America and all these places, Mongolia, it's, it's, it's I think yeah, it's... Tasmania um, is great. Tasmania is great because there's loads of wilderness on the um, western side of the island. It's about the size of Ireland, Tasmania. 
Mm. And it's uh, they've got a population of less than half a million, and they're mainly in two towns, um, Launceston and um, Hobart. And when you get out into the wild, their villages are the size of our hamlets, and then, wow. and then it <laughs> goes into wilderness. But the good thing about that is um, that the populated bits are very civilized and very nice, and they do much nicer chocolate than you get in Britain. <laughs> a lot better variety of chocolate you can get in Tasmania. And they've got these chocolates that are like, you know, crunchy bars? You know, yeah. honeycomb crunchy bars. It's like them, but they're, they're covered in chocolate and then covered in like this sort of candy cake. Oh, that's nice. That's, yeah. But they're called clinkers, which causes much hilarity amongst infantile Brits. <sighs> these called clinkers. Clinkers. Um, I, I love stuff like that. I love chocolate. I've, I've been fortunate enough this year to, to share the a bit of the massive weight I've put on since becoming a daddy uh, six years ago. But um, yeah, it's like a, it's an uphill battle. I love chocolate. I love all the treats. Don't drink, don't smoke, nothing like that. But the, that sweet tooth, you know, it's a bit of a, bit of um, a trial. And just before we go, uh, Richard, I wonder if you can just tell people about your new book. It's coming out, Adventures in Cryptozoology, Hunting for Yetis, Mongolian Deathworms, and other not so mythical monsters. Tell us about that. Uh, Adventures in Cryptozoology, it's available for pre-order now from Amazon. Uh-huh. It's uh, an introduction to cryptozoology, so it will, has different uh, chapters on different groups of creatures. There's an introduction uh, that's all about animals that used to be cryptids, but are now accepted, things like the Komodo dragon. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And the giant squid. Now, the fascinating thing about the yes. giant squid is that there was a in the late 17th, early 18th century, there was, sorry, um, late 18th, early, early 19th century, there was a French biologist called Pierre Denis de Montfort, and he studied mollusks, mm. and he became quite famous in his day. He wrote a, a number of books. He worked for the Natural History Museum, and he worked at the, the Botanical Gardens, and he was sent on expeditions all across Europe and right as far afield as Egypt. And his books were in use for years and years and years, and then he heard from whalers from Nantucket the stories of, of finding great scars on the, the sides of sperm whales and dying sperm whales vomiting mm-hmm. at these great tentacles. And he heard uh, from other other sailors uh, who had been in boats or attacked by huge cephalopods, and he came to the conclusion that they were monstrously big squid, and they were behind the legends of the Kraken. Mm-hmm. And because of that, he became a scientific pariah. He, he was sacked from his job. He couldn't get work anywhere. Um, he was reduced to selling seashells. And eventually, he died of starvation in a Parisian gutter in 1820. Gosh. Just a few decades later, the first giant squid was actually caught and confirmed mm-hmm. by science. So he was right all along. And he's been forgotten by history. Mm. And he was a great scientist. And he was right all along. And he was treated really shabbily. So that's like the introduction. Then we go on to different types of cryptids. I start off with dragons, which are one of my favourite things. Mm-hmm. Dragon legends in every single culture on Earth. They've been tracked back over 40,000 years to sub-Saharan Africa. So I look at sightings of dragon-like creatures around the world. And I look at sea serpents and lake monsters, uh, all sorts of things like mysterious apes and hominins, mm-hmm. creatures like the Tasmanian wolf, which I've gone looking for. Um, on several occasions and I've spoken to some fantastic eyewitnesses like retired loggers and government licensed shooters who've seen this animal who know what they're talking about about knives to grind, things like Mongolian death worm and also other legendary beasts like unicorns and mm. griffins. Where do those stories come from? For instance, with the unicorn, we know that there was a, a type of antelope called Procanthoceros, and it's known from the fossil record. Mm-hmm. These horns were so close together that in life they would have been killed by one sheath. So it's possible that Procanthoceros might have been the original unicorn. But I look at all these cryptids, both well-known ones and very obscure ones, and then in the second part of the book I detail all my own adventures looking creatures like the Tasmanian wolf, the orangutan wow. which is a, an upright walking ape from Sumatra, and we, we found handprints from that and footprints and we heard it falling. And, my mate actually saw it with our, our native guide, Sahar, and uh, 
my, my friend uh, Dave Archer saw the damn thing and wow. we got hair from it and Lars Thomas from the University of Copenhagen looked at the scale structure on his hair and said this is a new primate it's related to the Sumatran orangutan but it's not Sumatran orangutan wow and the Mongolian death worm and all these other creatures and then finally I, I have a chapter on giving advice of how to set up your own expedition from scratch wow <laughs> <laughs> what cryptid to what cryptid to look for? Yeah, uh, don't go looking for something that's only been seen once or twice. Go looking yeah. for something that has a, a a good lineage of of sightings going back for decades. Something that's likely to exist, and then I take it from there. And what equipment do you need? Um, how to contact guides? Well, you know how to how to make the most of your time when you're in the field. What you've got to do when you're in the field, and perhaps more importantly, what do you do when you get back? With that information, mm -hmm. don't hoard it to yourself. You've got to share the information. Yeah, yeah. I think that that sounds amazing. It's definitely going to be on on my wish list uh, for one of my next books to buy. I suggest everybody else who's listening to this buy it as well. Richard's books are great. They're very informative. Also, um, they they keep you interested. There's a, a little bit of humour here and there as well, which I like. Um, Richard, just before we go, where can people find you? Uh, online if people want to contact you or ask you questions about various cryptozoological matters how would they get in touch well the website is the center for Fortean zoology which is www.cfz.org.uk and there's um, my uh, email is richard at cfz.org.uk fantastic richard you've been a wonderful guest thank you so much for coming on Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you, buddy.